Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Yeah, I know you're thinking, de novo, who cares? It's a kiss of death for your product. It's not something that's really a realistic thing to consider as a regulatory pathway. So yeah, I know you're not going to listen to this because it's all about de novo, but you should because de novo might be the best option for your medical device. I've got Dr. DeNovo on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, so tune in to listen who Dr. DeNovo is and get some tips and pointers on how this might be a viable path for your medical device. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And we've talked a lot about regulatory, regulatory strategy, different types of submission. We put a lot of emphasis on uh, 510Ks in recent uh, content and podcast episodes. And, you know, there's certainly been a ton that has come out from FDA about that. But there's, there's another submission that we've talked a little bit about here and there. But I think one that's very important and I think we'll be gaining in importance uh, and, and the rest of this year and years to, to follow, and that is the de novo pathway. So who better to talk about de novo and its benefits than Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. So Mike, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Well, thank you, John. As always, it's a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. So I remember back in the day, Mike, it wasn't that long ago, but it was a few years ago where... You know, the, if you identify that the Novo was, you know, kind of the pathway for your device, I remember that almost like a kiss of death for what you're doing. Do you remember those days? I do, John. Thank you for reminding me that I'm getting older. Yes, you're exactly <laughs> right. Uh, for the for the first decade or so of the Novo's life, it was used very infrequently. In fact, on average, less than five medical devices were brought to the market each year under the de novo. And that is obviously changing as we speak. But uh, in many ways, it could be considered the, the kiss of death at that time. But, you know, to, well, someone's credit, and I, I guess I'll give credit to FDA because I think they had a huge part in it, but it, it seems like the, the tide has turned quite a bit. It seemed like some of the nuances and, and the gotchas that were part and parcel with the de novo pathway they don't seem to be uh, as problematic or challenging from companies. Would you, I guess, agree with, with that sentiment? To a certain extent, John, let's go back in history just a tiny bit. Sure. So, as I said, the first decade or so after the de novo was created, it was used less than five times per year. We cannot really give, to be fair, uh, FDA credit. Uh, we have to give Congress credit because back in 2011 and 12, they changed the law to uh, make de novos much more attractive to companies. And as a matter of fact, John, not to toot my own horn, but back in 2012, I was invited to give a presentation at the Drug Industry Association, the DIA annual meeting. And at that time, I predicted publicly that based on those changes, that it would become a much more popular pathway to market. And over the last five or so years, that is exactly what's happened. So I kind of find it interesting on a personal note how so many people are talking about it now, you know, an increase in its popularity. Well, 
quite frankly, any monkey can see a trend after there's, in this case, five data points. But where were all these people five years ago predicting right. the trend before that data was observable? So yeah. again, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but, uh, but you did hear it from me first back in 2012. All right. Well, let's give people uh, kind of an update on, I mean, it still pales in comparison to something like a 510K as far as the volume. But if you look at uh, the, the baseline of, let's say, five per year about a decade ago, where are we sitting at um, today? How many de novos like in 2018? And, and, you know, and, and I, I don't know if there are 2019 numbers, but, but how much more popular is the de novo pathway today? Well, it is it is increasing. Uh, first of all, your point about the comparison to the 510K is well taken. The the numbers of the de novo, although they are higher, they still pale in comparison to the 510K. So just some statistics for you, John, and I don't carry these statistics around in my head. I actually looked these up in uh, the, the most recent Madufa uh, report um, through February of this year. There were 56 de novos that were received by the FDA in calendar year 2018. And thus far this year in 2019, there have been 80, I'm sorry, there have been 18 received. So given that, uh, you know, we're actually on trend at the moment to have more de novos in 2019 than we did the 56 in 2018. Yeah. Of those 56 that were granted last year, John, uh, I'm sorry, that were submitted, that were received to the FDA, 44 of them were granted. Now, one of the most common questions I get from companies is what's the average success rate for de novos? It's very difficult to calculate that because some of those de novos that were granted in 2018 were actually submitted in 2017 or maybe even in 2016. So it's very difficult to to come up with a an accurate uh, success rate. 44 of them, as I said, were were granted. The others were still pending. A decision has not been made yet. Some some cases they were withdrawn. In a few cases, the FDA declined the de novo, and in some cases, the company decided to switch to a 510k or sometimes even a PMA uh, if they didn't make the case that it's uh, it's less than class three. What's interesting to note, John, about those statistics, and you really have to go beyond just those Medufa statistics, is what parts of the agency are seeing more or less de novos. And it's an interesting statistic, about 27%, almost a third of de novos that were received last year by the FDA were specifically for in vitro diagnostics or IVDs. And again, not to toot my own horn, John, but in the webinar that I did for Greenlight about a year ago on the de novo, one of the things that I said was the de novo is a very attractive option for medical device technology across the board, but the three that I highlighted were mobile medical apps, imaging, and IVDs, and that's exactly what's happening here. And the reason why I bring that up, John, is because uh, one of the many things that I take into account into my calculus in developing my regulatory strategy is how much, if I'm going to do a de novo, for example, how much de novo experience does that particular group at the agency have? For example, as I mentioned, IVDs, there's a lot of experience with de novo. Other areas of FDA, not so much. And so, for example, if I have a platform technology, if I have a device that could be used for many different applications, one of the many factors that I take into account is which part of the FDA do I want to bring to bring it to first? Cardiology, gastroenterology, neurology, 
urology and so on, because not all of them have the same de novo experience. So if I take it to a group that has more de novo experience first, it's going to make it easier to bring it to another group later on that has less de novo experience, because I wouldn't quite do it this way, John, but when I go into the second group, I can all, I can kind of start out by saying, well, we've already had this conversation with with your friends up the hall in this other group. And so, you know, why are we having this conversation with you? I don't know about you, John, but I'm not sure how many regulatory consultants take that kind of a, uh, uh, account into their calculus for developing their regulatory strategy. You know, it, it, it's, um, I, I don't know why it wasn't obvious to me before, but my goodness, Mike, that is definitely in the category of a uh, a pro tip, uh, you know, I think so often we get kind of caught up or focused on the options from a regulatory pathway. We don't go a layer or two deeper to to really analyze who at the agency is going to be the recipient of this, and that's very insightful. It's it's uh, it's an excellent uh, tip that folks should consider and and uh, factor in whenever they're figuring out you know options and pathways and. And in different ways to to um, to work with the agency. That's a that's a fantastic pro tip. Thanks for sharing that. Um, but it is interesting. I mean, what is it that I mean? I'll ask you to speculate a little bit, or maybe you know. But what is it that you think about like medical device apps and IVDs that make it a little bit more prone to uh, the de novo side of things? Well, that's a good question, John. So when it comes to mobile medical apps and imaging and IPDs, I think the, the, there are a lot of advantages of the de novo across the board in terms of starting out with a blank slate when it comes to the labeling, um, not having to show substantial equivalence. Uh, and in those three technology areas, uh, those are some very significant advantages. Again, I know for the purposes of this particular discussion, John, we're somewhat limited on time, but I would, you know, point to the the audience to the webinar that I did for Greenlight uh, a year or so ago, where I go into these in much more detail. All right, and and it, maybe it it bears uh, mentioned at least briefly without getting super deep. I mean, some people I I shouldn't assume, but some people might be hearing about de novo for the first time and, and may not know, you know, what it is and why it matters and that sort of thing. So maybe. You know, take a moment or two and, and give kind of a high-level overview of what de novo is. That might be helpful for this. It's a, it's a great question, John, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about what I call de novo 101. So here's my de novo 101. First and foremost, the de novo is appropriate for medical devices that are less than class three. So uh, any medical device that's class two or below is applicable for a de novo. It's also applicable for a, for a 510K because both the de novo and the 510K are for less than class three devices. Okay, so that's question number one. Can you show that this is not a class three device? Question number two gets into 510K versus de novo. And this is a conversation that I have with a lot of companies to decide whether they go the 510K route or the um, de novo route. The simple answer is, is there another device out there on the market that's very similar to our device, what we call a predicate device. And when I say similar, what I mean is uh, in terms of the technology as well as the labeling. So if there's a device out there that is very similar to ours in terms of the technology and the labeling, then that might be a push towards the 510K side. On the other hand, if you're working on a device that is truly new or novel, 
In other words, a device that's not similar to something out there in terms of technology or labeling, that's going to be a push to the de novo because one of the big advantages of the de novo is you don't have to show substantial equivalence. One of the things that you brought up in your recent column on the de novo, John, is that many people think that the 510K is the simplest pathway to market for medical devices, but in many ways, the de novo is even simpler than the 510K, and here's why. Because the 510K comes down to two things, substantial equivalence as well as risk. In other words, quite frankly, I don't care if you filled out all the forms properly, if you've dotted all your, your I's and crossed all your T's, unless you have a uh, rock-solid substantial equivalence argument and a bulletproof risk mitigation strategy, your 510K is simply not going to be successful, certainly not first time out of the box. But in the de novo world, it's actually simpler because in the de novo world, there is no substantial equivalence. If there was, you would be in the 510K. So the de novo comes down to one and only one thing, risk mitigation strategy. And here's the example that I like to share uh, with people when I talk about the de novo, John. Think about a Band-Aid. Today, Band-Aids are ubiquitous. But back in the day, there were no Band-Aids. So if we were bringing the very first Band-Aid onto the market, what would be its default classification? We would have no choice. It would be it would be set at class three. And when you think about it, that makes sense because it doesn't have any history. So we set the risk, the risk bar as high as we possibly can. But it shouldn't take an MD or a PhD or an RAC after somebody's name to appreciate that, gee, it doesn't make sense to treat a Band-Aid like an artificial heart for no other reason than it's new. So when it comes to the de novo, the simplest way I can explain it, it comes down to one thing, John, risk mitigation strategy. We have to go into the FDA and to be able to argue with a straight face that it doesn't, here's our Band-Aid, it's brand new, there's nothing like it on the market. But it doesn't make sense to treat our Band-Aid as an artificial heart. Instead, it should be class two, and here's why, or class one, and here's why. So that's sort of the the de novo 101. Does that make sense, John? It it totally does. It totally does. I mean, and folks, this is not trying to diminish what a de novo is and and the the details. There's a lot of nuances in these details. And and, uh, Mike has written about, talked about, you know, he mentioned the webinar that he did with Greenlight uh, uh, a bit ago. So we'll provide a whole bunch of information for you all in the text that accompanies this podcast on the de novo so you can dive much, much deeper than that. But yeah, the context is, makes sense. And folks, I want to remind you all, I'm talking with Mike Drews. Mike is the president of Vascular Sciences. And, and today we're talking about uh, de novo and you know some of the, the benefits of, of this particular path from a regulatory perspective. And while I got your attention uh, on a brief interruption, I, did you know that Greenlight Guru that we launched a brand new podcast? Yep, that's right. You'll have to go check out MedTech True Quality Stories. Wherever you're listening to uh, this podcast, the Global Medical Device Podcast, you'll be able to find MedTech True Quality Stories. So go to iTunes or SoundCloud or, or any other place that you're consuming podcasts. Check it out. It's fantastic. We're talking with CEOs and 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 you know medical device professionals working with companies and bringing new products to market and they're sharing some of their challenges and you know what's what's worked what hasn't worked and and it's really fascinating so be sure to to check it out and and share that with your friends as well all right so mike let's get back to uh de novo i i don't know if this is fair or not but it does seem like uh whenever you talk about de novo or whenever i hear about it de novo anyway it's almost like there's always a comparison between de novo and 510k i mean is that 
that fair? I mean, to, to always have these, these two topics sort of bundled together in the same conversation? Well, I do think in many ways it is a fair comparison, John, because they're sort of opposites of the sides of the same coin. In other words, both the 510K and the Novo, as I just explained, are appropriate for class two medical devices or lower. So it does make sense to compare them. And in that sense, John, one of the most common questions that I get when I when I talk to companies about the 510K versus de novo decision is what's the typical review time or the average review time? And by the way, John, I hate when people ask me that question because it's oh, so variable. But but let me just share some statistics with you in your audience. And I did a little fact checking because some of these statistics are a little different than what some people in the press will have people believe. So right now, according to the most recent Madufa statistics, the average review time for de novos across the board uh, is about 183 days. Now, that's the total time to the decision. In other words, that includes both the FDA time as well as the company's time. So about 183 days. Now, putting that in comparison, those statistics have remained fairly constant over the last five years. In other words, in 2013, about five years ago, the average review time was about 260 days. And over the last five years, the numbers have fluctuated a little bit, but roughly we're talking between six months and eight and a half months. So uh, in spite of what the politicians will have us believe, there's really been only a decrease in de novo review time over the last five years of about two months. Is that significant? Well, in my opinion, if I'm going to be brutally honest here, John, it's really not significant at all because, and some companies are probably not going to like to hear this, but a lot of the companies that I see out there, including some of the ones that I work with, they waste so much time. It takes them so long to do a seemingly simple thing that a reduction of two months uh, over five years from the FDA is not a very significant reduction in my book. But nonetheless, the review times are going down a little bit. So most importantly, for when it comes to planning purposes, here's what I say to companies. Uh, if you're going to submit a de novo, figure on average about six to eight and a half months for a decision from the time that you make the submission to the actual decision. Now, putting that in comparison to a 510K, I also looked up the most recent statistics for the 510K. The average total review time for 510Ks uh, across the board, and keep in mind, John, as you well know, and the 510K universe is a very broad universe, uh, is about 105 days. So bottom line, for a 510K, we're talking averages across the board, figure about three to four months. For a de novo, figure about six to eight months. So a de novo is, give or take, a few months longer than uh, a 510K. Why? Well, when you think about it, John, this makes total, total sense. Because as I said earlier, a de novo is for new and novel products products where there is not a comparable Me Too out there already. So it does make sense that it's going to take a little longer for FDA to review that submission because we don't have anything to directly compare it to. In addition, a new product code is created, new regulation is created, in some cases new special controls are created. So all of that takes a bit of time, but nonetheless, I don't think a couple extra months of uh, a de novo review should be a negative thing 
when it comes to a company making a decision of 510K versus de novo. On the contrary, John, uh, there are some very significant advantages of the de novo, especially when it comes to competitive regulatory strategy that will make those few months uh, just, just pale in comparison. And one other thing that I want to just remind our audience in the 510K universe is that although the average uh, time to decision for a 510K right now is sitting at about 105 days, please keep in mind that 70% of 510K submissions are being sent back by the FDA to the company with an additional information request. I think that's totally uh, embarrassing as an industry, and you and I have talked about this before, John. 70% of these submissions are basically being marked incomplete for whatever reasons. I think that's that's uh, that's just, quite frankly, embarrassing. I mean, it's alarming. Hang on. I want to hang on that for a moment because it's kind of alarming because that number hasn't really improved in a, well, I think ever is probably the accurate way, but... Uh, you know, it's, it's like the quality of our our submissions, at least on the 510K world, don't seem to be trending in the right direction. And uh, you and I have talked about this in the past uh, on, a, on a previous episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Most of the times, the, the reasons for the additional information, they're almost always 100% in control of the company. So the, this is unexcusable, really. Regrettably, John, I could not agree with you more. As I've said publicly many times, our and, and by the way, I take no pride in saying this about our industry, but our industry has devolved, not evolved, but devolved to the point where we are essentially treating the FDA as our elementary school teacher. In other words, here's my homework assignment. Will you please mark this up and give it back? And I'm sorry, John, maybe I'm getting a little old, but that's not the way this game is supposed to be played. So as you and I have also talked about before, we can greatly hedge our bets by avoiding an additional information request or some other kind of a problem by communicating with the agency in advance of the submission, whether it's with a pre-submission meeting or something else. And as you as you know, John, uh, the popularity of the pre-sub program has increased uh, over the last several years. As a matter of fact, there were over 2,700 pre-sub wow. requests just last year. Uh, not help, but over 2,700 pre-sub requests. And simply put, John, and this is a topic of another discussion, and I did a webinar for Greenlight on this as well, uh, but the pre-sub can be the company's best friend. It can also be the company's worst nightmare. Most pre-subs, in my opinion, John, are not successful. The question is, what is a successful pre-sub? My definition of a successful pre-sub is when everybody walks out of the room agreeing with me. By that criteria, John, <laughs> most pre-subs are not successful. But fortunately for me, because I do, you know, I, I, I do quite frankly know uh, what I'm doing when it comes to putting together the, the biology and the engineering and the regulatory all in one, you can have a successful pre-sub and you can really minimize the, the, the delays and so on later on. So my best advice and people that listen to us before, you've heard me talk about this many times, um, talk to the agency in advance. But the last thing I'll I'll remind everybody of, John, is remember my uh, regulatory mantra, and that is, tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. Please don't go to the FDA with a pre-sub and basically ask the FDA, what do we do? That's not their job to tell you what to do. Uh, That's our job. Yeah. Anyway, back to the de novo. 
with respect to de novo, I mean, there's still uh, you and I've talked a fair amount about pre-subs in the past, but there's a there's a lot of value in a pre-sub for a de novo. Can you maybe speak to that just a little bit? Absolutely correct. Uh, let's take this up a notch or two. So when I go to the FDA with a de novo uh, as a pre-sub, I say, here's my device. This is the way that it works. This is our labeling and so on. We're going to bring it onto the market as a de novo. But before I tell you why I'm bringing it onto the market as a de novo, let me first tell you why I'm not bringing it onto the market as a 510K. In other words, I want to take away every possible opportunity that I have for FDA to disagree with. And by the way, John, that street now runs in two directions. Because as you and I have also talked about, the 510K is under a tremendous amount of controversy and attack today. So when I go to the FDA, and I did this just a couple of weeks ago with a, with a pre-sub, um, as a, if I go to the FDA with the device as a 510K, I say, here's my device. This is what it does. This is how it works. This is our, our labeling and so on. We're going to bring it onto the market as a 510K. Before I tell you why we're going to do it as a 510K, let me also let me first tell you why I'm not doing it as a de novo. So once again, uh, when I play this game, John, and this is a poker game to me in every sense of the word, I want to take away every possible opportunity that I can for FDA to disagree with me. Yeah, I mean that's sound advice, and you know, folks, uh, you, you've heard me say this about Mike before. I was thinking I should start calling him Dr. DeNovo, but that would be limiting. I mean, he, <laughs> um, uh, but in, in all seriousness, I mean, Mike, Mike is a pro at this. And, you know, I, I don't know how his real poker game is, but his regulatory poker game is, is fantastic. So he, he makes it to the final table, and he usually uh, leaves the table with the, the tallest uh, stack of chips. Uh, so if you like... Well, me. thank you for saying that, John. <laughs> and by the way, one or two other things to add. Yeah. Uh, speaking of controversy of the, the 510K, as you and I have talked about many times before, it's actually become much more difficult for me to sell a 510K at the FDA today, and conversely, much easier today to sell the de novo at, wow. the, at the, the FDA. And so I try to use those political wins to my advantage. And here's an interesting question to you, John. So the popularity, the number of de novos, as we talked about, has increased over the last several years. There's no question about it. But can we conclude that because we have more de novos being granted today, that we have more uh, new and novel medical devices coming onto the market as opposed to 510K and MeToo's? Do you think we can make that conclusion based on that data, John? Ah, uh, this feels like a trap question. Um, you know, I was like, when Mike does this to me on the spot, um, the, the, my knee-jerk response is no. You can't make that conclusion. So I'm going to stick with that. I'm not going to. I'm not going to dive into the trap any further. <laughs> well, you did get the correct answer, John. But let me explain why I'm I'm bringing this up. Because a lot of the politicians are saying that because of the increase in the de novos, that we have more new and novel devices. And simply put, that's a conclusion that the data simply does not support. In other words, it's possible that we have more new and novel devices, but it is also possible that because of the controversies around the 510K, as I mentioned a moment ago, 510Ks are now becoming more difficult to sell at the agency, and therefore FDA is pushing more uh, in the de novo direction. 
I'll give you uh, a recent example, John, and I have to be a little careful with what I say here because this is a device still under development. We brought a device to the FDA um, uh, just a few months ago as a 510K. And in my opinion, as a professional biomedical engineer, this was a very strong, very legitimate 510K. FDA did identify a couple of new risks that were in our particular device that were not present in the predicate device. Um, and as an engineer, I have to stipulate that, yes, they are correct. Those were new risks, but in my opinion, they were trivial risks. It's kind of like, you know, the old expression, you know, you, you couldn't put an eye out with that, you know. So uh, they were new risks. Now, in the past, and when I say in the past, John, I'm talking about just with, uh, you know, more than just, say, two years ago, that would have never raised an eyebrow at the FDA. But now FDA is taking a much more literal interpretation of the risk regulation when it comes to the 510K. And I think, John, you and I perhaps have talked about this a little bit in the past. And I happen to be a subject matter expert for FDA in a couple of different areas, one of them being risk. But sufficient to, suffice it to say, the risk regulation for the 510K has not changed since the 510K was created in 1976. Right. But what has changed and what is changing is the interpretation of that regulation. So in that particular case that I described a moment ago, the FDA is pushing back on the company very hard, That not because of substantial equivalence, but because of risk. This, this device does does uh, create some new risks, which again, I will stipulate, but I would also counter that they're trivial risks. And as a result, this device should be a de novo. Now, in the past, I am 100% confident that we would have been able to get that device onto the market as a 510K. As a matter of fact, there were so many examples that I gave to the FDA uh, from the imaging world, John. Um, uh, you, you asked about imaging earlier. So we brought MRI machines onto the market using CT as a predicate. Now, it should not take a PhD in biomedical engineering or an expert in risk to appreciate that, gee, maybe there are some differences when it comes to risk for MR versus CT. Yeah, right. So right. in the past, that was a no-brainer, but in, in, in currently, things are changing. So the regulation has not changed, at least not yet. There are some proposed changes, but nothing has gone into effect. But what has changed and what is changing is people's interpretation of that regulation. As I've said before, John, regulation is all about the interpretation of words and our ability to defend our interpretations. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I I know uh, we can go back in time, and, and I know you might have first brought this to, to the world's attention back in 2012, 2013 about the de novo pathway, but, but I recall sometime last year, maybe it was a couple years ago during some of our conversations, this was in the beginning, so to speak, of the flurry of all the quote 510K changes that were coming from the agency. Uh, I don't remember if we talked about it actually on the podcast or just you know in our, one of our conversations, but... We, we talked about is this is this almost a, a movement to almost drive or push the de novo as a, a more preferred pathway so uh, we could speculate on that a little bit but you said something a minute ago that I want to kind of dive into just a bit and, and use as sort of the wrap-up for our podcast today yeah you, you said something about there are some competitive advantages of a de novo over 510k would you care to elaborate on that a little bit as as we wrap up the conversation today? Absolutely, John. Happy to do so. And again, thanks for the opportunity to do just that. So, look, 
we can say a lot of things about the 510K, but at the end of the day, it comes down to one thing. We have to show for a 510K that our device is basically the same, i.e. substantially equivalent to another device already out there on the market in terms of both technology as well as in terms of labeling. In some cases, that's easy. In other cases, it's not. But in the de novo, we don't have that limitation. In the de novo world, we can, when it comes to labeling, Let's just focus on the labeling for a second, John. When it comes to labeling, we start out with a blank slate, a blank canvas, and we can literally paint onto that canvas anything that we want. We can make any claim that we want as long as we can support it. You know, one of the things that differentiates my approach to this game, John, compared to so many others, is I refuse to be the regulatory police. I refuse to tell companies what they cannot do. If a company says, we want to make the claim that our new device regrows missing limbs and cures cancer, I say, by all means, go for it as long as you can prove it. As long as you can prove it. So let me use a specific example to illustrate what I call competitive regulatory strategy. A few years ago, a company came to me. They had a sterilization device. It was kind of like an autoclave. And they told me that they were going to bring this onto the market as a 510K. And I said, okay, fine. Tell me a little more about your technology. Well, it turns out that they were able to achieve the same level of sterilization as the other devices out there, but at a significantly lower temperature point. And I said to them, okay, you couldn't do this as a 510K. There would be nothing wrong with that. But what would you have accomplished? Nothing. Because now, why should anybody use your particular device when they could use one of the other 50 or so other devices that are like that? And so instead of doing the 510K, they did a de novo. And we incorporated this low temperature claim in our high level labeling. And what did that, what did that bias, John? Well, one of the things that results from a successful de novo is it creates a predicate that your competitors can use to to get their new device onto the market as a 510k but you see we can make it more difficult for them to do that if we as i just described include this technology claim this low temperature claim in our high level labeling why because now nobody else can use our device as a predicate unless and until they meet our technology. And oh, by the way, if we own the IP on that technology, that ain't going to happen anytime soon. So this is one of many examples of what I call competitive regulatory strategy, John, a very sophisticated way of using regulation to your advantage, a way that, in my opinion, most people don't even think about. What do you think about that idea, John? I love it. I mean, it goes back to that head trash or, or you know, moment in time that I, I started with this conversation that you know, it used to be kiss of death, and, and and I think that that head trash, that baggage, is still probably lingering uh, throughout the industry. I think you know, to your point that you offered a little bit ago, that you know, even though the review time is theoretically longer, if you look at the averages by maybe a couple of months, that there's such a a much greater upside from a de novo path. Uh, and 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 I I love the idea. I love the thoughts, the advantages, the just figuring out how this could be used to your benefit rather than to your detriment. Well, I agree with you 100%, John. Like everything, there's advantages and disadvantages. And the conversation that you and I have been having today is very illustrative. It's very similar to the conversations that I have with companies every single week when we uh, talk about um, assuming that our device is class two or lower. What are the advantages and disadvantages of a 510K? What are the advantages and disadvantages of a de novo? And one last thing that I'll mention quickly, John, before we wrap this up, 
we have to make that decision, not just from a regulatory perspective, but we also have to take into account reimbursement and product liability and other things as well. You can't make these regulatory strategy decisions in a vacuum. Um, what good is it, after all, to get a product onto the market, that is, get it through the FDA via de novo or some other pathway, only to come to find that nobody can use it because nobody uh, can get paid for it because CMS won't reimburse for it? Um, what good is it to get a device onto the market under the de novo or any other pathway only to come to find that uh, it causes harm to people and you as a manufacturer get sued and you didn't take into account your product liability when it comes to uh, the strategy as well. So this is a complex uh, uh, game, John. Uh, but one of the first steps is to separate the different pieces of the puzzle, try to understand them individually, and then put them all together to make uh, something that looks like a, a coherent, good, big picture. Absolutely. So, folks, I'm, I am going to use Dr. DeNovo. Uh, <laughs> he does other things than uh, more above and beyond DeNovo's, but, uh, but uh, you know, he's got a, a track record that's impeccable and, and a success rate that, you know, it's, it's frankly should be the, the bar for the rest of uh, those dealing with regulatory submissions. Um, you know, of course, as soon as you all start to reach the bar set by Mike Drews, they'll figure out a way to exceed that. But in, in all seriousness, Mike Drews, vascular scientist, he is the best when it comes to uh, creative and, and you know, really, uh, I think creative is a good word here. I, I wanted to make sure it wasn't a, a misappropriation, but a creative regulatory strategy that makes sense to help companies maximize the value of the products that they're bringing to market. As always, I want to thank Mike and his uh, insights on on these topics. It's truly help, helping the industry. I mean, I get comments all the time from many of you who listen about how you're enjoying these conversations. Uh, certainly, if there's topics that you would like Mike and, and I to dive into further, shoot us a note. We'd be happy to dive into to any kind of type of regulatory topic that, that you're curious about. Uh, I, I, this is the highlight of my day. I get to have these conversations. This is why I get to have... Uh, probably the best job in the world because I get to talk about these things with pros like Mike Drew. So as always, folks, uh, this is the, the founder and, and host of the Global Medical Device Podcast and VP of Quality and Regulatory Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.